Welcome to No Silly Questions, an education podcast for parents with your hosts, Danielle Freilich and Jordana Fruchter, two New York City educators, school leaders, and friends. We know that your child's journey through school doesn't come with an instruction manual, and that along the way, you'll have questions and encounter educational jargon and difficult decisions. So together with our network of experts, we're here to guide, not prescribe, and consolidate all the information you need. Your time to unplug with us starts now. Today's no silly question is how do you parent a teen? In season one, we spoke with the toddler whisperer Tova Klein all about how to navigate tantrums. And today we're bringing you the teen whisperer, Dr. Lisa Demore, who is catapulted into the parenting scene to help us understand the emotional lives of teenagers and what those of us with littles like you and I, Danielle, have in store. Dr. Lisa Demore is the author of three New York Times bestsellers, Untangled, Under Pressure, and the Emotional Lives of Teenagers. She co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and is recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association. Dr. Demore is also a regular contributor to the New York Times and CBS News. Dr. Demore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be with you. So Dr. Demore, I shared this before we hit record, but a few months ago, I had the privilege of hearing you speak at a school auditorium here in Manhattan where we live. And when I arrived at the venue, and this is not an exaggeration, you know, the line to get in the door looked like, you know, I'd arrived at a rock concert. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh my goodness, I thought I had gotten there early, <laughs> but people were clamoring to get front row seats and there really wasn't an empty seat in the house. And I think that, you know, that is sort of an accurate illustration or reflection of the desire and even the desperation of parents to understand this stage of life, what the heck is going on in the emotional lives of their teenagers, and then sort of furthermore, what are some tools that they can add to their arsenal to sort of meet the moment as parents? And so as we do here on No Silly Questions podcast, we ask our listeners what their questions were for you, what big problems they're encountering with this age group, because as they say, small kids, small problems, big kids, big problems. And we received tons of questions. And so what we've done is sorted and synthesized the trends for our conversation today. So with that, I'll pass it to Jordana to sort of get started on a first common trend that we found. So Dr. Demore, a lot of parents wrote in about this topic and some of them whose children have just freshly entered their teenage years at, at 13 years old, they want to know how they can talk to their kids about navigating things like drinking, vaping, and or drugs while making sure that their children feel comfortable coming to them if there's a problem. Oh, what a great question to get us started. That's such a huge topic. And I, I actually, I would say talking about teens and risky behaviors is one of my favorite topics because I kind of feel like, you know, it doesn't matter what your kid's getting in algebra if they're not taking good care of themselves or they're not safe. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's so basic and fundamental that we address safety questions. So one way to just think about this, like just by way of like 30,000 foot approaches, the word safe. Like I talk, like I, that just comes right into how I think about it. And it's already, I've said it like three times already. The reason we don't want kids drinking too much at parties, messing with drugs, driving fast, you know, having unsafe sex is it's not safe, right? It's not that it's illegal. It's not that it's immoral. Like you may feel that way. It may be illegal. That's not the rationale. And that's not actually a compelling rationale for teenagers, at least. It's about their safety. 
And I think when we center on safety, what we do is we set up a situation where the safety goes with the kid everywhere the kid goes. And when the kid's not with us, they're in charge of their safety because they're independent young beings. If we make it about like it's illegal or I think it's wrong, then it becomes like, well, don't get caught or don't let your parents find out that you've done it, which is exactly not what we want them focusing on. So start with that broad thing. The issue is safety and safety is neutral. Your teenagers should want that for themselves. And of course, we want that for our teenagers. Then build on what you've already been doing as a parent from the minute your kid was born, right? Which is what we take good care of our kids. We look out for them. And talk about this transition as a handing over of that work. I have cared for you all this time and kept you safe. As you get older, you care for yourself increasingly. You look after yourself and you keep yourself safe, right? So it's an extension of what's already occurring. It's not some brand new thing. And so then you can start to integrate conversations about why I don't want you smoking weed. Well, that's not you taking good care of yourself, right? You have one brain. It is especially vulnerable in adolescence. You smoking weed is, you know, really does stand to do harm to that developing brain. That's why I don't want you to do it. It's not safe, right? So it just it just grows with the kid because we can't tell teenagers to not do stuff and think that's going to work. And you, we can't control their behavior. So what we want to do is partner with the side of them that wishes to be safe, has high aspirations for the future, and talk about how you help that partner make sure everything goes that way. Now, in terms of kids wanting to come to us and bringing us concerns, the magic here is in how we respond when they start talking about the stuff they're hearing at school. Because usually by seventh or eighth grade, kids will start to drop. And I remember when my older daughter did this, she's, she was in the eighth grade. She's like, yeah, I'm hearing about weed gummies at school. All right, this is a golden moment in parenting. And you can mess it up. And if you've messed it up, I can tell you how to fix it. But what we want to do ideally is be like, oh, what do you think about that? So we're not flipping out, we're not ignoring it, and we're making it clear, you can bring me these spicier, worrisome things, and I am not going to hit the ceiling. And it also means that if you've done this, we can talk about it because I have not hit the ceiling. So that's how kids usually test the waters. How judgmental are you going to be? What's the story here? And make the most of those moments to make it clear that you're interested, but you can handle it. That you're not going to be like, whoa, it's illegal or what's the matter with those kids or whatever. Because basically what your kid hears is, I should never bring this up with you again. And then use it as a moment. And I remember when she told me about her classmates that she heard were, you know, experimenting with weed gummies. I was like, oh man, that makes me so worried for their neurological safety. That's my concern. And then I'd said to her, like, do they seem kind of fuzzy at school sometimes? And she said, yeah. I said, that's the weed. That's what you'll see. So treat those moments when kids put it on the table as just a huge gift to make it clear that you're interested, you're open, you're not going to be heavily judgmental, and you're interested in safety. And I think that's an important message even for parents of young children because those conversations start very young when something arises at school with a peer on the playground and you know just thinking about how your parent is going to react to that starts at a young age. So Dr. Damore, let's just sort of take it to the next step now. So you're a parent and you're in the moment. Your child wakes up on a Sunday morning and tells you about their experience the night before and that they were involved in it, that they drink too much or they tried vaping. And you want to make sure that your child doesn't feel shamed, but you also want to let them know to express some form of that's not okay. How do you do that? So if the kid's bringing it up, they know it's not okay. If they feel good about it, they're not going to say something. So what you want to think about in that moment is all teenagers have two sides. There's the side who drank too much last night 
And there's a side who's waking up this morning thinking, I, I really got lucky that nothing went wrong and I kind of freaked myself out. The side we speak to is the side that shows up for the conversation. So the kid who's like, yeah, it got a little out of control last night or things weren't good or it was almost bad or one kid really got into a bad spot. What you want to think about as the adults in that moment is there's your partner. You're going to partner with that side of the teenager going forward. And so then you can say, yeah, no, that does sound scary. And it does sound like it became unsafe, right? If you just focus on safety, the rest you can let go of. And then you can say, if you had to go back, is there something that could have happened differently that would have put things on a different path? Or what got in the way of you or your friends making the right decision? Because you know what to do. I mean, that's the thing. It's not that they don't know what to do. It's that something gets in the way. So you want to ask that question. And then you can say, what's the plan going forward and how can we help? How can we help? And the kinds of under the how can we help category, things like, you know, if you want to take the car and the fact that you're driving means that you have a free and clear reason to say you can't do anything, like you can have the car. Like if that helps make it easier, if you want to blame us and just say that like we are maniacs about this stuff and we're going to urine test you, you know, like sporadically, we won't do that, but you can blame us. Or if you want to come up with something else where we get to help you. But I think the key the key thing, if you say nothing else to your teenager about risk and safety, the words I want every parent to say to their kid is, we will never, ever, ever make you sorry that you asked for our help. Because if a kid gets in a jam and they get in a jam, these are not, you know, parties with RSVPs. I mean, this is stuff where it gets out of control fast. You want them to think, I am calling my folks and I will not be sorry that I did. And Dr. Demore, what's your philosophy on a consequence? or not as a result of this. So I like that you use consequence, not punishment. And there are consequences for choices, right? People make choices, choices have consequences. If you take really good care of yourself, you get more and more freedom. If you show that your judgment can be kind of wobbly on a Saturday night, you get less freedom, right? So I think if kids do things that are evidence that they are not taking care of themselves, not doing a great job of keeping them safe, I think the way you say it is something like, look, your safety is the and all be all. There is nothing more important than that. You just showed us that eh, you're not bringing your A game. Why don't you hang close to the house for a couple of weeks? You know, and you can decide how long based on how out of control things felt. Think about it, grow on it, learn from it. And then we're going to give you another chance to show us that you can keep yourself safe. Right. But I, I will beat the word safe to death here because that is all that matters. And that's how you stay on neutral ground with teenagers. That's really brilliant. And, you know, and I heard you say that it's, you know, it's inevitable that our kids are going to make mistakes and our ability to tolerate their mistakes helps build their ability to tolerate mistakes and despair, right? And that you said their ability to tolerate distress is their path to fr their freedom, which I think is really interesting that kids need to know they can put themselves in unknown or uncomfortable positions and come out the other side so they can make the big mistake at the party. And that's actually fertilizer for growth, right? That if if they have to always be guaranteed comfort or never make mistakes, then their lives will be narrow. Well, let's let's make a distinction between mistakes and distress, because if a kid could get through high school without ever making a big mistake at a party, I would be fine with that, because sometimes the mistakes that get made at parties are irreversible and we don't want that. But we do want kids to be able to tolerate discomfort and our ability to tolerate discomfort is what creates their ability So we want them to feel like they can branch out in the world, do unknown things, take risks, and then at the other side of that, we don't want those risks to be the kind that you can't come back from. Right. 
And so building on this idea, it's a smaller example, but still plays on the idea of sort of short-term, long-term thinking. So the last thing that any teen wants to hear from their parents is, honey, did you do your homework, right? And yet a parent feels a responsibility to help their teen stay motivated and meet their obligations because we can see around the corner in ways that they can't always and that the work that they're putting in now will pay dividends down the line. So any suggestions for parents navigating this? This is so wonderfully threaded together. I mean, these look like different topics, but they're so exact. You're exactly right. They grow from one another. So the way we want to think about this, we're talking about choices and consequences. Another way to put it is to think in terms of responsibilities and privileges. And these things are attached throughout life, that when we meet our responsibilities, we gain more privileges, right? When you do a good job at work, you get more, you know, more and better work. And you probably get paid more too, right? I mean, that there's like there's nice things that come from doing with what what you're supposed to do. So teenagers, what they want is more privileges. Like a healthy teenager is like, I want to go out more. I want to go to places where you're not necessarily calling the parents. I want to go to that concert that makes you uncomfortable. I mean, this is like the beauty of adolescence. They are typically driving towards the desire for more freedom than we have given them in the past. You can attach that to them demonstrating responsibility on the things that we can observe, like turning in their homework or taking the dog for the walk if they said they'd take the dog for the walk. And it could be like really like the dog and concerts go together, but they do. Because what you can say is when you and I both know it's your job to take the dog for a walk and then you're not doing it, you are not showing me good judgment. Now, this concert, which you know I don't feel great about, requires your good judgment. I will not be there. You are in charge of keeping yourself safe. So if you are not showing me good judgment on the thing I can look at, which is your responsibility with the dog, what kind of parent am I to say yes to something that hinges where your safety hinges on your good judgment? So you start showing me the good judgment on turning your stuff in or calling when you say you will or picking up your stuff around the house. And then I am much more able to feel comfortable about your safety saying yes to the things you're asking for. So does that mean that if they are not turning in their homework, you know, or flunking in a class, then you would take away their privileges, not to go back to the sort of consequence conversation, but meaning would it be framed in, well, you're not sort of exercising good judgment in your daily responsibilities, so it makes me feel less inclined. Absolutely. And what I think is different kids need different levels of closeness between the choice and the consequence. So there are some kids whose executive functioning may still have a lot of room to grow where they need, like, I turned it in today, I get the reward tonight. (laughs) I mean, that they need them to be in very close and I messed it up today. I don't get the reward tonight, but I can start again tomorrow. Other kids whose executive functioning may be further along, you can say like, we're going to look at your end of semester grades and we're going to make decisions about what you're doing this summer. Those kinds of things where there's a lot more room because you can trust them to make those connections more between the choice I'm making right now and the outcome I'm going to have later. But the the size of that space is going to depend on the kid you've got. And Dr. Demore, in your opinion, how do more materialistic things like gifts or money play into this conversation? If you know that a teen is motivated by that. So I think there's two things. There's gifts and there's bribes. And I'm actually okay with both, but we got to like define them very carefully. So I, I think it's really lovely. You know, if a kid has done something, end of the year, they had a great year, take them out for a nice lunch, you know, and if you want to give them a present, just saying like, we're so proud to be your parents and 
here's something that we just want to celebrate. What a great year you've had. So notice how you said we're proud to be your parents, not we're proud of you. <laughs> yeah. Right. I did. I did. Because I think proud of you, and not that you can never say it, but I think proud to be your parents, like just lets the kid own it more. That's really nice, actually. I like that. That resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a little tweak that matters a lot because they do want us to be proud of them. Yeah. But you heard the difference and I hear the difference. So I think a gift is, they didn't see it coming. It wasn't a guarantee. It's given just because it's given. And nice things are nice. And it's fun to have celebratory moments in families. There's also ninth graders whose maturity is still coming along and who really do not understand how they are shooting themselves in the foot to not be getting it together academically. And there's a very good chance that the 17-year-old version of that kid is going to be very frustrated with the 14-year-old version of that kid for basically phoning it in all year. And their maturity is just not there for them to connect You know what I do today with a three- or four-year outcome. I would lean on them. I would try to get them into stuff they like. I would try to attach it to their privileges. I would all do all those things. If it's not working and the kid likes money, I am like of the like desperate times call for desperate measures school of clinical work. And if you're like, this kid is going to flunk out or just damage themselves, but they'll do it for cash. I am not against doing that as a short-term, don't let this kid damage themselves solution. And usually by 15 or 16, they're like, whoa, 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 I want to go to X college. And it doesn't have to be like that they're trying to get into Harvard, but like that they just want more options. And suddenly they're doing it for reasons that are internal to them. That's really helpful to understand how you frame that. So we want to talk to you a little bit about a cultural phenomenon that we've been experiencing for a little while now, cancel culture. And while Danielle and I have and work with younger children, we've often thought about how difficult it must be for teens today, you know, to grow up with a magnifying glass on them during the years that it's natural to experiment and explore and make mistakes. So how can a parent help their child if they mess up and their friends and peers want to cancel them? And in your own work, how often are you seeing this? I'll tell you when I see it. I don't usually see it because a kid did one dumb thing. I will tell you, teenagers actually have a very high tolerance for one another. They they know each other well. They're together all day. They know what's in each other's hearts. I think often they have a good sense of their peers. Like It's not happening outside of a broad, broad context of knowing that kid. In my experience, when a kid has done something out of line, said or done something that was wrong, and they know it, and they apologize, and they own it, and it's rare for them, or it's, it's exceptional for them. It was, it was a stupid, impulsive thing, and they did it, and they felt bad the minute they did it, and they own it. You know, their peers will be mad at them, but like I've seen that just sort of move along. When I've seen kids really be shunned socially, right, if that's what we think about what culture, it's like, it's because they have repeatedly engaged in behavior that is offensive. And so I don't know that it's as fragile as it looks from the outside. And I think sometimes by the time we hear that everybody is like done with that kid and cannot hear them use the N-word one more time or whatever, like it may seem it was on a single thing. That's not when you have the whole story. That's not usually how it's gone down. Well, you know, there's the whole dynamic between the child and their peers. And then there's the dynamic between the parent and the child or the parent 
and the parents of the other children. And I imagine that that's where parents might feel stuck. Like, to what extent am I supposed to step in? To what extent does my child want me to step in? And to what extent is it appropriate for me to reach out to the parents of the children who are canceling? Or even if we take away that word cancel, a group of kids who, who have decided that they no longer want to allow a child into their group, to what extent is it appropriate for the parent of a teenager to step in? Probably not that appropriate at all because they're teenagers. And so they should be sorting it out. And there's you know, kids who decide that they're going to kick someone out of their friendship group. And that can happen for any variety of reasons. It may be because that kid is persistently offensive and they're dealing with the consequences of their behavior. Or it may be, you know, and we're seeing more of this, unfortunately, post-pandemic. It may be where the friendship group is pretty fragile and the way that the bonds are maintained by the kids who are in the friendship group is by deciding they're going to all mutually dislike this other kid. You know, so there's that kind of thing where you'll see shunning happening in that way. So there's a little bit of like, it can happen, you know, a kid being pushed out of a group, there's a lot of paths to that outcome. If it's that the kid's been offensive, that's one set of responses, right? I mean, they can't talk that way about people. They can't talk that way about groups. They need to learn empathy. They need to improve their social skills. That's one set of solutions. If, and this is happening more, really, truly post-pandemic, it's just a bad dynamic in a friendship group where somehow there's a gang up because that's what gives the kids who want to be in the group something to talk about. It's miserable. It's extraordinarily painful for the kid who's been pushed out. The parent should offer tons of support, help them look for new opportunities socially and help them move on. Very often, if the parent wades in and starts getting on the phone with other parents, they'll make it worse. They won't actually help their kid out. That's helpful. Thank you, Dr. Demore. Hey everyone, Danielle and Jordana here to tell you about three popular services listeners are taking advantage of consulting, referrals, and speaking engagements. Have a question or situation for your family that we can support you with? Schedule a one-on-one -on -one consult through NSQ Consulting. Need to find a provider or specialist for your child? Submit an inquiry through NSQ Parent Providers Connect and we'll find a match. Want to offer a workshop with us at your company? Go ahead and reach out through NSQ Speaking Engagements. No Silly Questions is your hub for all information relating to your child's learning, education, Education and development at www.nosillyquestionspodcast.com. So we've sort of spoken about, you know, what happens when kids are mean to each other, right? But on the line, as I mentioned, on the line waiting to hear you a few months ago, I made a friend and it was a, a father and he said he was there because his teen comes home from school and he and his wife asked their teen, you know, how was your day? And the teen can, you know, barely look up from their phone and sort of mutters, uh, you know, it's fine. And that's the extent of the conversation. So sort of shifting a little, what happens, you know, when your teen is sort of quote unquote mean to you or rude as you perceive it, what uh, should parents' expectations be sort of in this regard? What's appropriate and what are some strategies for having a more robust conversation at the end of the day with your teen? All right. So there can be some basics around just phone etiquette <laughs> and the whole family can observe it and the parents have to do the same. And I think you can say, look, you need to answer my question by looking at me. You know, you can do it in a nice way, but not, not make it too personal, not make it too hot. There's sort of two categories of teenagers at the end of the day. There's a kid who has been cataloging every annoyance and injustice and injury from the day and has borne up quite gracefully under it at school because they are keeping a mental list 
And the fact that they're keeping the mental list allows them to look like they're okay with it during the day. And they walk in the door and they give you the entire lowdown on every horrible thing that happened today. So they're talking. They're talking a lot. And often it's got quite a negative valence. As you can tell from how I'm describing this, I don't really have an issue with this. They are so good at school. School could be so annoying no matter where you go to school. Wouldn't we rather they are, they'd be good citizens at school and just save it and dump it in our you know, laps? And as long as the parents just see it as emotional garbage and the kid held it together knowing they could bring home this rundown of every horrible thing that happened, usually the kid feels better having dumped it and the evening can move on. And the parents know not necessarily what happened that day. They just know all the annoying things that happened that day. And that may be as much as they're going to get. So there's that kind of kid. Then there's the kid who's like, it happened, it's over. Why would I want to rehash the whole thing, right? I'm going back for more tomorrow. It's behind me, it's done. I don't ask you guys to tell me about every meeting you had today. And if I did, you probably wouldn't want to talk about it, right? So I think we have to really be you know, aware. Like school's hard and it is long and they are stuck in group projects with kids they would never have chosen and they're so good through it. So I think a lot of kids are like, I don't know, it's over or it's behind me. Or I've been with people all day. I don't want to talk to anybody, right? I think we have to acknowledge if your kid is at all introverted, school is exhausting. And being with other people is exhausting. And getting home and wanting to squirrel away in their rooms almost always has nothing to do with the parents and is entirely about that kid needing to put themselves back together to go in for another day. So I think we have to be okay with the two most common forms of how teenagers come home from school, either complaining their buns off or not wanting to talk about what happened. And then I think we have to be open to when they do want to talk. And it tends to not be when we want to talk. They tend not to want to talk on our agendas much more on theirs. I write in the book about realizing how common it is for kids to wait until we're in bed and then suddenly they want to talk, you know, and it's, they have more control at that time. They're dictating the agenda more. They can leave if they want to. So I think being open to when they do want to talk and not making a big deal of it if they are in the first two categories either complaining or pretty quiet. That's really helpful. And I remember you saying that sometimes sort of the phone is a comfort that helps them bring their emotions back under control. It sort of settles those emotional waters. And so, you know, that encourages us to be a little bit more generous when we see them engaging in that behavior. And hopefully later in the evening, like you mentioned, that's when that it'll be on their terms and they'll choose to share with us. We did get a number of questions from parents. I would say more of parents of girls than parents of boys about what to do when your child wants to spend a lot of time with somebody or have a sleepover with somebody who, you know, the parent perceives to be too advanced for their child or what to do when you feel your child is doing something that you perceive to be too advanced, like a 13-year-old wearing sexy clothes. What's the best way for parents to respond. A ch- your child is begging you to have a sleepover. You really don't feel it's appropriate or they're begging you to wear a certain dress because that's what they feel comfortable in. Give us some information about how to navigate that while going back to the original question of still hoping your children feel comfortable talking to you about these things. These are so loaded and important as topics. We don't get to choose who our kids' friends are and we're not always going to like their friends. And We have some say, right? You can be like, no, you know, if that kid's coming over, I'm staying. (laughs) Like you guys aren't hanging out around here by yourselves. But if your kid is like, no, I want to go to a sleepover at that kid's house where we're going to do makeup all night and your kid is 10 or 12 or something and you're just like, really? Makeup? Like, really? 
one measure is what are the potential long-term negative consequences of what they're doing? If you're like, I don't like it, but it's not going to follow them into adulthood, you know, that's something to assess. And then I think you can say your piece. You can be like, I'm not going to tell you you can't go over. I got to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of makeup on 11-year-olds. And your kid can roll her eyes. And then your kid's going to go over and she could put on a lot of makeup. And then she's going to come home and you're going to wash it off. And nobody has to win on this. You've set your piece. And I think that the thing we have to accept is that our teenagers are going to go out of our homes and we will not have control over a lot of things. But what we can control is that they leave our homes knowing what our values are and knowing that when, I mean, I think about, I'm older than you guys are, I'm 52, but I remember when I was in high school, Porky's came out. It was like the most disgusting movie, right? And I remember watching it in a friend's basement. No parent would be okay with their teenager watching Porky's. No parent can stop it either. But I remember thinking, oh, my parents would lose their minds if they knew I was watching this. That's as good as it gets. That you have installed, installed a filter where your kid is aware of your values and aware when they're coming up against content that doesn't match it. But you can't, with teenagers, seal them off from the world. Then there's the issue of the 13-year-old who comes down in the micro mini or the bustier. At least they're wearing sneakers with their minis yeah. these days. And that's <laughs> true. It's true. It's true. The sensible shoes. And the parent who, like, their jaw hits the floor, and it's a really delicate moment. Now, part of what makes this so hard is the understanding that they each bring to the table. The adult is bringing an extremely different understanding of this than the teenager is. So the adult, with all of our lifetime experience, gets how sexy this is, gets how provocative it may strike some other adults as being, gets how maybe like inappropriate age-wise it is. Like, I mean, like we have all of this life experience. The 12 to 13 year old is still a very concrete thinker who has no worldliness about adult sexuality because they are a kid. They cannot know these things. And what they are thinking is, I'm looking at this in the magazine. It looks really cute. It looks cute on me. It looks on me the way it looks in the magazine. And the kids I know are wearing this. And what's the big deal? And truly, they just cannot share our awareness or perception of what's happening. And so when the adult, and this is so easy to do, is like, oh my God, you look like a, you know, and fill in the blank. The kid is like, what? Like, I mean, that is just so far from their perception. And it can actually be very hurtful to them. Like, they're like, are you kidding? Like, I won't even let anybody hold my hand. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it feels so out of sync. So what you say in that moment, like different families are going to have different perceptions on this. But I think you could start with saying like, look, I get it that this is what you're seeing and this is what kids are wearing. I got to tell you, it looks different to adults than it does to you guys. And I'm pretty uncomfortable with this or this isn't going to happen right now. Right. And again, it's really delicate and really tricky because you will get to a 14, 15, 16 year old who does have a better but not complete understanding of sexuality as, it, as they ultimately will, who will say, this is me owning my power and it's my body and nobody can tell me what to do with my body. And you're in that category too. So these are much different conversations than they were literally even 10 years ago. That teenage girls as a group were not defending clothing choices based on empowerment in the same way they are now. And again, one of the measures I use in parenting teenagers is, will it matter when they're 30, right? And probably your kid leaving the house and not exactly what you wish you were wearing will not matter when she's 30. So you can 
say your piece, but I don't know that it's worth having a full-on power struggle over. That makes sense. And again, anchoring sort of your perspective in their safety brings the temperature down and has them able to see your perspective in their interest and not, you know, with sort of acrimony or, or sort of in an oppositional way. Danielle and I have been having different conversations with different expert guests, and this topic of parental authority keeps on propping up. And you said yourself that this thread of this is my body, this is my choice, I'm in control of that is sort of a newer thing for this generation. What are the points when you really feel uncomfortable with something as a parent? Maybe your trigger is a sexy dress or something else where it's like, this doesn't feel good to me. And even though it feels good to you, I'm not going to let you do it. I think there's what we always can fall back on which is the best outcomes we see in terms of what parents do hinge on the parents providing both warmth and structure. And we want our kids to feel not just loved, but that we like them. And we also want them to feel like there are rules and parameters that matter. And I think there can be places like my mom, it drove her bananas if you left dishes in the sink, like absolutely bananas. Okay, was this going to matter when I was 30? Was it no, was this dangerous? No. But like, it was just, it was a rule in our house. And so it didn't even have to have like, she didn't have to be able to defend it. It was just like, these are my rules. This is my house. When you leave, you'll do your own thing. And I think there's plenty of room for that in parenting. I think there's plenty of room for that in parenting. At the same time, it is the job of teenagers to find friction with their parents. And it's concerning to me if there is not a place where there's tension between a teenager and the parents about what the kid wants and what the parent wants. I am such a fan of when teenagers find friction around stuff that truly will not have lasting consequences. When they keep their rooms messy, when they want to wear stuff their parents don't want them to wear, when they want to wear their hair in a way their parents don't want them to wear it, when they, you know, like when they're listening to music that really rubs the parents the wrong way, you know, that rubbing parents the wrong way is part of a teenager's job. I think it's worth getting into it with them around the small stuff. And I, I would say this is all small because I'll tell you what I think is big. Drugs, dangerous sex, scary driving. You know, I mean, they're like, there's like truly scary stuff that teenagers can get themselves into. I would say that is the stuff where we throw down, throw down, right? Where you say like, absolutely not. We are not hosting a party. That is never going to happen. That is, you know, wrong and dangerous, right? I mean, like, I, I believe very strongly in there being, you know, just non-negotiables. And then every family is going to work out where the friction is going to lie. I think that's a great answer. And by the way, when they're 18, we won't be able to put our foot down, right? That they'll be able to wear the dress if the micro mini, if that suits their fancy, because they're emancipated at that point. So Dr. Damore, I don't know if this is a high stakes or low stakes environment, you tell me, but we wanted to get your two cents on the landscape of social media, right? So you have parents trying to offer their kids advice around their behavior on social media, and you made this joke, I thought it was so funny. It's like our kids approaching us with advice around our home mortgage, like stay in your lane, right? Like we are, you know, we're not native to this digital landscape. And so it's unlikely that we're going to be able to relate to the depth and extent that is required to, you know, have that credibility in the conversation. So, but nonetheless, it does seem like being a teen is potentially more complicated these days because you're managing your in-person persona and your digital avatar. And we keep seeing, right, you turn on 60 Minutes or what have you, and there are all of these reports around the mental health crisis that, that relates to this for teens. So I guess my question is twofold. The first is, is there a mental health crisis for teens right now? 
Secondarily, is it a direct result of their time spent on social media? Okay, so I would say yes, there's a mental health crisis. That mental health concerns among teenagers were rising before the pandemic. The pandemic absolutely worsened it. And so a lot of kids who needed care could not get care. And we saw a lot more kids suffering. Now, key to the mental health crisis was actually the two things, both that the need rose and also we couldn't care for them. That those of us who care for teenagers, there's not a lot of us. It's highly specialized work. So when the need surged, it's not like we could like magically triple the workforce to meet that need. And so it was really a crosshairs of those things, a lot of need and not a lot of people who could take good care of those kids. I think it's easing post-pandemic. A lot of kids are doing much better now that things have returned to what was in place before. But that's very concerning. Okay, now the second question about what's the place of social media in all this. There are two places around social media that I think really do contribute to mental health concerns for kids. One is problematic content. If teenagers are spending time looking at social media content that promotes eating disorders or hate or self-harm, or anything else, you know, destructive, violent, dangerous, I, I think it does shape behavior and I think it does shape mood. And I think that's a problem. So you've got to keep an eye on what, where are your kids when they're online? Where are they, where are they and what are they looking at? The second way that I think social media can shape mental health is sort of what we call the displacement argument. It gets in the way of the stuff that's good for kids. Sleep. Teenagers need nine hours a night. Middle schoolers need 10 hours. Younger kids need 11 or more. Physical activity, being with people in real, you know, in real life, making meaningful contributions, which we, you know, to their family or to their community, which we know protect mental health. That's what I would say to parents. Like, if you're going to worry about social media, worry about what they're looking at, and worry about the fact that it made, you know, even if they're only looking at puppy dog videos, don't let it displace stuff that we know is critical for development. But social media is not all bad, and I don't think there's a single kid for whom it's not simultaneously good and bad. And I think if we roll up on teenagers, like it's going to turn you inside out and damage you forever, where are the conversations over before it started? I had not heard that idea about displacement. I think that's so wise. So it's not just the content that they're consuming, but it's the opportunity cost of what they could be doing positively to add to their life experience. Thank you for that. Of course. And I will just say, like, I know that the headlines about social media are overwhelming and everything. Just focus on those two things. Like that really matters. And I would just say, no matter what, don't put phones in the bedroom. Don't let phones go in the bedroom. Like hopefully never, but definitely not overnight. We had a guest come on who agrees with you wholeheartedly. And and again, it comes back to something you said earlier, which is like, blame it on the parents. You yep. know, he's like, because it's apparently really hard for teens to not you know, if their friend texts them to not respond immediately, it's seen as a sign of, you know, betrayal, et cetera. And so the easiest alibi is up oh, my, those darn mom and dad, right? They took it out of my room, but apparently sleep is not just important for my newborn, <laughs> but I, you know, just as important at the, at that life stage. And I bet that teens are not sleeping as much as they need to be. No. And in fact, if you look at the chart on worsening sleep among teenagers, it matches perfectly worsening mental health among teenagers. So this is a fight worth having. And and I think it's interesting, like a theme that's coming through is like, what are the fights worth having with your teenager? This is a fight worth having with your teenager. I don't think that parents would put that at the top of the list. I feel like, I don't know. That's like, I'm curious to hear that. But I'll say, I mean, and what I love about your audience, you've got younger families and younger kids. It's not a fight if you set it up this way. So when it tween is like, I need a phone. Can you define a tween? What age is a tween? 
So I would say like 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay. You know, so we consider them adolescents and they are. But when they're like, I need a phone. So the first question is, what for? And if they're like, because all of the plans are being made without me, which can happen. That's a reason. Actually, that's a reason. They will agree to anything in that moment. Anything. So if you say, sure, we're going to give you a phone and you could give them an iPhone if you want. No browser, no social media apps. This thing texts. We're also going to set it up that you cannot add anything without our approval. And it never crosses the threshold of your bedroom and it charges in this room. And, you know, they'll be like, but can I have the phone? And you'll be like, yes, but under all of these conditions. So if you start there, it's not that hard. And if you don't have phones in your room, right, where it's hard are these poor parents of 16-year-olds where the phone has been in the room for three years and they're trying to walk it back. But I don't want people to feel like this is hopeless or unmanageable. Like, it's not. But go slow and have a lot of rules to start. So sneaking in one really quick question. So what is the appropriate age for a kid to get a phone, right? We hear this wait for eighth. And have heard that that's unrealistic from parents. Yeah, wait, sort of like wait for eighth plea or, you know, parents conspiring together because, again, the social pressure is what's dominant, right? So if an entire group of kids, if their parents all make the same choice, then, you know, each family has less pressure to do so. Anyway, what what's your opinion on this? Okay, so here's the deal. Social media definitely has downsides for teenagers. Social isolation is horrible for teenagers. Like, we know this too. So look for the inflection point. How far into development can your kid get maintaining good connections to kids they like and know without technology or only with texting or maybe as they age only with one social media platform? But make it clear to them, social media, it is to sustain your social life. It is not like that's what it's for. And so I have a daughter who's 12 who got a phone earlier than I would have given it to her otherwise because she has a college-age sister and they wanted to be able to text. And I thought that was important. And I set it up that way. There are no browsers, no apps. And I said to her, you are not getting a social media app until it becomes clear that you are unable to maintain your in-real-life friendships without it. You're riding on texting until that day comes. And my hope is she's 15 or 16 or 17 before that day comes. And I will tell you, 15, 16, 17-year-olds on social media apps are very different creatures than 12, 13, 14-year-olds, or 11, 12, 13. I mean, like, that's a huge difference. Thank you for allowing us to maximize our time with you and ask you so many questions, but I really feel so satisfied from the answers that you gave. So really, thank you so much for all of your insight. We like to wrap up our episodes with what we call extra credit. So they're just short fill-in-the-blank statements, and I'll kick us off. If I could tell parents one thing, it would be... You're doing fine. Okay, I'll do the next one. The role of schools is to... Educate our kids and help them get used to being around a wide range of different kinds of people. And then lastly, one thing that gives me hope for the future of childhood or teenagehood, we'll change it for you. One thing that gives me hope for the future of teenagehood is... The fact that the single most powerful force for adolescent mental health is strong relationships with caring adults. That's a powerful note to end on. Can you say that one more time for the cheap seats in the back? I'm processing it. Say it one more time. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. We've studied this a long time. The number one thing that promotes and protects mental health in teenagers is strong relationships with caring adults. 
that is inspiring, right? For every parent to continue to pour into the, those relationships, although we know that, you know, that they're already doing that. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Damore. You are so wonderful in every way, so well-researched, but also able to relate. And so I, we just really appreciate your time today and know that our listeners are going to want to listen to your podcast, read your books, et cetera, if they haven't already, if you wouldn't mind where to direct them so that they can learn more from you. The best place to find everything is at my website, which is drlisademore.com. And it has, you know, it'll direct you to my podcast and to my written work, my TV work. And it's also organized into categories now. I've got a lot of resources. And so I put them all into six categories on my website. So there's like peers and friends, stress and coping. And so if you click on those categories, it will take you to that content. So you don't have to muck around so much. I also put stuff up on Instagram almost every day to try to just be of use, give parents like snackable support as we go. So those are some of the places to find me. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Silly Questions. We hope you enjoyed learning from our guests as much as we did, and we'll see you back next week. For more information on this podcast, please visit our website at nosillyquestionspodcast.com and check out our Instagram account at nosillyquestionspodcast.com.